It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. Just finishing up after a day on call in the hospital, and so ready to do this thing. What was the RPE of your shift? Uh, Lower than usual. Not too bad. So this was a light, this is a light day. A lighter, day? Yeah. Yeah. Lighter call day for sure. How low many, fatigue, low fatigue, <laughs> how many reps in reserve would you say <laughs> that you had a lot? Okay. Uh, as, uh, always as of late, this podcast is brought to you by pioneer belts trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessory needs. Pioneer has a belt to fit your needs, whether it's a 13 millimeter thick four inch wide lever belt for powerlifting, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit and everything in between. They'll also custom make belts to your specifications. All products are made right here in the USA. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. I also, it was brought to my attention, they also make golf head cover covers. And again, I have emailed Matt and I'm like, hey man, when am I getting the Barbell Medicine custom drip for the golf bag? That That's what I need. I feel like to find, to reach my final form on the golf course, I need custom head covers. That just seems like a fact. It's just a... 100% need. I mean, I'm already bringing the <laughs> freshest drip when it comes to the shoe game. My outfits are on point. My swing is trash, but that doesn't matter because I look good <laughs> while I'm doing it. What I need are custom head covers that nobody else can get. And I think, again, once I do that, I will have ascended to, to what do the youths say? Is it is it is that on God or? or I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I'd say, look, man, this new gym that I'm going to. I think the average age may be like 24 or 25. And I didn't realize how removed I am like from the vernacular because we're on the internet quite a bit. So we mm-hmm. see the sure. stuff and we send memes back and forth and whatnot. Oh boy. Like how do you, I don't even know how to talk to the youths anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you can't use the English language. You have to, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to I'm gonna have to get a translator. I think, did you ever watch the key and peel bit where they, where he's Obama, and then they, he brings in his anger translator. Anger translator. That's yeah, awesome. I feel like I need that. For you. <laughs> so if you're listening to this and you're between the ages of 22 and 26 and you understand what's going on, like, please contact me. Like, I need to figure out. <laughs> I need your help. Uh, okay, before we get into this, this is episode 208. We're going to talk about sports-related sudden cardiac death uh, and what causes it. We do have new merchandise on the website. So the Barbell Medicine Lifting Club stuff. We have the banners, flags. Austin, you got your... You got your your new flags for the House of Gains. What is this, version 3.0, 4.0? Uh, probably we're up to four at this point. If I had to guess, I'd have to, to walk through them over the past 13 years or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, over the years. So, okay, we'll be looking for lifting videos should you ever decide to post on social media again. Jesus, yeah. can, we just, can we get some posts? Uh, but, yeah, check that out if you want to support us, uh, rock some fresh merch, get noticed in the gym. It'll lead to a PR. It's just science. We have good evidence that suggests a robust relationship between barbell medicine lifting gear and PRs, I think that's it's just science. So I mean, we can say we can say stuff with that degree of confidence. There's plenty of other podcasters that you know just oh make things gosh. make things up, pull it out of thin air. So can you? Okay, I can't start on that. I'll just yeah, if we, yeah I just can't. We'll spend the whole podcast <laughs> talking about trash on social media. Uh, in addition, we do have some live in person events coming up. So in two weeks' time, we'll be in Miami for the pain and rehab seminar. Dr. Derek Miles, Dr. Cameron Clouser. Uh, Dr. Charlie Dickinson, Dixon, sorry. I always call him Dick. I don't know why. Why do I do that? Just 
lack of lack of intelligence. Uh, in any case, all new pain and rehab seminar in Miami. We have a few spots left for that. I think I think it's one spot left at this point. So uh, hurry and sign up for that if you want to be. I feel like it's warm down there. Like it's certainly warmer. So. It's warmer than it is here. I feel like it's been raining the last seventy five percent of the day, of the days. I feel like I need to build a ship. Because <laughs> we actually got random snow last week in in El Paso. Fortunately, it's a little better now. But that really, was, I was not pleased. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. So here, um, we just had the season opener of the uh, professional Supercross series, so indoor motocross. But they held it in Angel Stadium in Anaheim, which is open dome, right? So it'd been raining like every day leading up to this. And so what they did is they put a tarp, they built the track and they put a tarp over everything. And then when they pulled the tarps, there was like standing water on the tarps mm, and yeah. all the water went into the transitions. So the jumps are hard packed dirt and in between are like, ended up be oh just huge ruts and so the yeah. riders were all like, yeah, you'd just be like doing this jump and then you'd land in the transition in a series of ruts and then you basically hit a curb of hard dirt and then pray you're going in the right direction mm-hmm. at the right velocity <laughs> i'm like i'm gonna nope my way right out of that one Seems so high risk yeah 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 i don't know what the injury rate is in in motocross but assume high um that in any case <laughs> yeah uh we also have a seminar coming up in atlanta georgia i think it's alpharetta georgia actually so just outside of atlanta that's in february that'll be our two-day health and performance seminar and then the last seminar we have on the books right now for 2023 is in may it's in brooklyn new york we'll have some additional dates to announce shortly but hey we'd love to see you at one of our seminars if you want to learn all the latest nuance in health and fitness uh anything else before we pop into this thing you do you doing okay you all right? I'm doing all right. Yeah, just doing a lot of teaching these days, so things are good. Oh, so that means Austin is happy. When Austin <laughs> is teaching, he is fulfilled. <laughs> Love that. Um, I, t- you know, the only thing I have to announce for people who care about things going on with me is I took a nice little dirt nap on Sunday. Uh, I decided after seeing the professional riders do their thing on Saturday that I should ride Sunday. So I went to a local track, and as you may have imagined, based on my previous weather report. It's been getting a lot of rain, and so that was a little, uh, a little dicey. And I ran out of talent, and rather than hurt myself in a musculoskeletal from a musculoskeletal standpoint, I decided to use my head to break my fall. And what you do in that situation is you just become unconscious for a period of time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I shouldn't, you know, whatever. I uh, luckily, luckily, nothing really happened. I just felt, uh, yep, that was a lights out moment, and then I need to be on some active rest, uh, for the time being. You think you've been concussed? I would say so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, luckily the helmet, the helmets these days are way better than the helmets we used to race with, with all the technology and whatnot. And it doesn't look like the EPS liner was like actually compressed or damaged as far as I could tell, but I was definitely out for a minute. Um, and then, you know, popped back up and had mm. my brains. So squats on Monday were actually, I was like, this is going to be bad. I didn't feel particularly bad going into the gym uh, and squats were actually fine. I tell you what, today was the worst on bench press going from the supine, like laying yeah, down to yeah. standing, standing back up. I was like less than ideal, less Makes than ideal, sense. but I was more afraid to press overhead because I was yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're just winging it. We're just winging it. We'll actually have to do an episode on concussions and uh, return to activity because that's a pretty controversial uh, space. And so I bet we'll, Derek uh, has some hot takes on that too. Yeah. Yeah. I messaged him about that. So in any case, we're going to talk about something else that's controversial. We're going to talk about sports related sudden cardiac death, given the most recent sort of mm-hmm. media blast about this. You guys, if you don't follow sports, uh, January 2nd, Monday night football, 
24-year-old Demar Hamlin, he's a safety for the uh, Cincinnati Bengals, tack, uh, tackled uh, wide receiver T. Higgins in the first quarter. Uh, he went down, was administered CPR for 10 minutes before being transported to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, where he was admitted to the ICU and intubated. Now, for those who are not involved in the medical field, when somebody gets admitted to the ICU, what does that represent? What sort of level of care does that, I mean, is that bad, good, neutral <laughs> I mean, you and I, good. you and I know, yeah, but yeah, sure. yeah, it's, it's, it's what we would consider like the highest level of level of care. And, and what that means is the, um, basically the amount of staff per, per patient. So typically like the amount of nursing care, there's usually one nurse for one patient or one nurse for two patients in, in most adult, uh, ICUs that are adequately staffed. Um, there's a lot of other supportive care. They can do things, you know, even, as frequently as once every single hour to even more frequently than that, which is not feasible at other levels of care. So you can kind of think of, you know, the spectrum of medical care ranging from your your regular doctor's visit that you might go and see them once every year or potentially less frequently. And then maybe there's a walk-in clinic for a, you know, a, acute sick visit or an urgent care or something like that. And then there's like an ER that you would go to potentially get admitted to a hospital, to a regular hospital floor, to an intermediate hospital floor, and then to an ICU. And all of that relates to the frequency of attention that you need, the kinds of interventions that you need, and and how many people and resources need to be marshaled for, for your care. And so being in an ICU, particularly in an ICU at a large medical center in a city, um, you know, the, a, a big referral center, that's going to be like the highest of, of the highest because they're going to be able to do all the things that even ICUs at surrounding like more regional or, or, or more rural hospitals, they have ICUs too, but they're not necessarily capable of doing everything that a big, you know, city academic type medical center is, is able to do. So, yeah. Now, as you may imagine, not a lot of uh, like actual medical information has been released about what happened and subsequently uh, what happened during his admission to the hospital. But if you're admitted to the ICU, so already we're thinking this, the severity is high and then he's intubated. And so you're like, well, he obviously was not breathing, uh, adequately on his own. And so they had to do that for him. Um, and at some point it sounded like he had some acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is why he was proned and, and all sorts of stuff. So I don't, I don't imagine a lot of information is going to come out just because again, it's private medical information and really doesn't help any of us go on about our lives. But uh, yeah, it definitely was uh, was interesting that that happened. So that was the 2nd of January. The 4th of January, he's still in the ICU, um, but he was showing signs of improvement, but not enough to be discharged, you know, removed from the ICU. So again, still at that point, you're like, wow, he still needs a high level of care uh, based on his condition. He was extubated on the 6th, so two days later. Uh, and, that just, and, and that just means that they removed the breathing tube. That's mm -hmm. not necessarily common vernacular. So it means they took out the breathing tube, took him off the ventilator. He starts breathing on his own spontaneously. He's awake. Yeah. And I would imagine, and again, this was not confirmed any, in any media outlets that I could find. I assume that once he was uh, the tube was taken out that he was probably downgraded, you know, either to an intermediate level floor or a regular yeah. hospital bed, likely. Yeah. And then he started tweeting on the 7th. So <laughs> I, you know, look, if you're tweeting, that's I feel like, that's a, yeah, patient can tweet. Uh, and then he was discharged uh, just yesterday. So the 9th. So he was in the hospital for, you know, about a week and uh, was was discharged and has gone home and seems to be improving. But yeah, that that was kind of the impetus for this uh, particular episode, just not only all the media attention, but then all of the social media coverage at, uh, subsequent to that. So like, why did this happen? What's going on? How common is this? So we figured, hey, 
let's have a timely podcast on sports-related sudden cardiac death. So let's start off here with some definitions. What is sudden cardiac death? It's here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, episode 208 with Dr. Austin Baraki. So according to the 2017 American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and the Heart Rhythm Society guidelines, sudden cardiac death is the abrupt and unexpected death occurring within an hour of the onset of sudden cardiac arrest which is defined as the sudden cessation of cardiac activity so that the victim becomes unresponsive with no normal breathing and no signs of circulation. If corrective measures aren't taken, sudden cardiac arrest can progress to sudden cardiac death. There's a lot of suddens in there. Uh, But the way I think about this is sudden cardiac arrest basically means, well, the heart has stopped pumping, has stopped working, and the person becomes unresponsive. Sudden cardiac death can happen secondary to that if no interventions are taken. Is that is that kind of how you think about this? Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, I think that it it appears it may appear sudden to external observers. There's not really like a super slow version of cardiac arrest. <laughs> um, the the, the <laughs> trending the, a, a gradual cardiac arrest. I mean, there are oftentimes in most of the kind of patients that I see who are generally not young, healthy, that just collapse like this, but usually have a lot of underlying chronic medical conditions, there may be a whole culmination of long events that that kind of coalesce to cause the ultimate problem that leads the heart to stop either pumping effectively or goes into a dangerous rhythm that isn't really able to effectively deliver blood to the brain and body and things like that, or it might stop altogether. Um, but in the younger population, which is what we're talking about here, this kind of more um, you know, sudden onset issues in, in people who are apparently healthy. Um, that's, that's kind of a, 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 of a different nature. And so, and so that's why, you know, for him, it may not be terribly unusual. It's still impressive that he was able to, you know, walk out of the hospital after a week. But if one of my more typical patients had an arrest, they're still usually quite sick and in the hospital for multiple weeks because of all the other things that led to it are still ongoing and may even be worse afterwards. So there's kind of a spectrum of this. Yeah. So sudden cardiac arrest is actually not uncommon overall, like if you just look at the population, uh, but sports related and sudden cardiac death is relatively rare, although it has been happening presumably since the beginning of human existence and like physical activity. Um, you can, the people at home are going to be asking like, well, what's the difference between like a heart attack and sudden cardiac arrest? Like, how would you explain that to a, to a patient? Yeah. Yeah. A heart attack is, is a very, very commonly used phrase, um, that, is often incorrectly used to refer to all sorts of things relating to the heart when really in in medical speak, um, typically a quote unquote heart attack is describing a myocardial infarction. And that's a situation where an area of heart muscle dies due to a lack of oxygenated blood flow the, there are various reasons why that can happen. The most common that we are most concerned with is when there is a, um, you know, a, a atherosclerosis, which we've talked about on other podcasts, the cholesterol plaques that can develop in the arteries and those can rupture and lead to a clot forming and that clot can block blood flow to an area of heart muscle. And when muscle doesn't get oxygenated blood, it can uh, start to die off. And so that's kind of what a heart attack technically is. That is completely different than your heart stopping beating, your heart going into an abnormal rhythm, your heart uh, going into heart failure. All of those things are unique and different than a heart attack, although a heart attack can lead to any of those things. A a heart attack with the blocked artery can lead to an abnormal heart rhythm. It can lead to heart failure. It can lead to sudden cardiac death, but those are distinct and, and, and very different things. Yeah. And in particular, we're talking about sports-related sudden cardiac arrest and subsequent sports-related sudden cardiac death. We're really talking about something that's happening during physical activity. Uh, It's difficult, uh, as we'll 
you know, make clear when we talk about how often this happens and actually defining these things. So like, what is it only during competitive sports or do recreational, you know, participation in sports, does that count? too and so it, you know you kind of get pedantic here it's like oh we're only going to talk about high school college and professional sports or we're going to talk about any participation in recreational activity um so that's you know we're talking really about what's happening during physical activity and again the definition that we're currently working with is something that happens within an hour in general of participation in either sport or recreational activity and then that would be the sudden cardiac arrest and then if it leads in fact leads to death then that's sudden cardiac death. So two related, but not necessarily synonymous terms there. Uh, and it should also be noted that, you know, while exercise is one of the most powerful tools that we have for improving health overall, including cardiovascular risk factors, exercise and athletic activity can increase the risk of sudden cardiac death in individuals who are predisposed to this. Um, that being said, sudden cardiac death from sport is a rare but devastating event. Victims can be young and apparently healthy. And while many of these deaths are unexplained, a substantial number harbor underlying previously undiagnosed cardiovascular disease. And we'll make that clear when we talk about the two different groups that kind of, uh, and the two different ways that those groups experience or uh, uh, have sudden cardiac arrest. So let's talk about the epidemiology here. So how often does this happen? Um, so dating back to at least 2014, when you know one of the landmark papers on this actually was published, sudden cardiac death is the most frequent medical cause of sudden death in athletes, recreational or competitive. And so that right there, just take that, put it in your brain, burn it into your hippocampus, do the thing because people are saying, oh, this has never happened before, or this is so rare and so new. No, no, no. We've known about this for a long time. It's been codified in the literature that, again, this is the most frequent medical cause of sudden death in athletes, period. On average, every three days in the United States, a competitive athlete experiences a sudden cardiac death, and many of these deaths are nationally noted. However, this same intense media speculation is not given to a non-athlete who experiences sudden cardiac death or indeed to a competitive athlete who has sudden cardiac death off the athletic field. Many of these underlying conditions can cause sudden cardiac arrest and subsequently sudden cardiac death during periods of physical inactivity, which represents a much larger swath of time in the, per in the person's day-to-day -day life than their training, than their participation in sport. And so if it happens without cameras, without the lights, without the reporters, you may have never heard of it, even though it's technically the same thing. So as far as calculating how often does this happen, the methods really matter for calculating uh, the number. Um, first off, you would want to have a lot of mandatory reporting systems like registries to generate really reliable results, though few of these actually exist. Meaning that if an athlete or participant in a recreational sport has a sudden cardiac arrest and or sub subsequently sudden cardiac death, you'd want to make sure that they report these things, but that doesn't always happen, particularly uh, in large countries with big athletic populations like the United States. For example, many studies rely on the use of media reports to identify cases, but even though people are doing their, you know, researchers are scouring news reports, they're still missing a substantial amount of cases. Uh, so for example, in Denmark, only 20% of athlete deaths ID'd by death certificates were found through extensive media search. In the US, media reports only identified about half of total cases. And so it's kind of difficult to figure out like how often is this happening because you can't even get like the numerator, like, okay, well, how many deaths happened in 2021 from sudden cardiac arrest uh, in athletes in the United States? 
the denominator, the bottom number also matters. So basically we're just trying to calculate a ratio. And if we can't figure out how many people are actually participating in a given sport or sports at large, well, like how do we calculate the incidence? Uh, and then finally, depending on the studies that you read, some will only include sudden cardiac death. So people who actually, you know, subsequently passed away uh, from having a sudden cardiac arrest, the intervention, they usually either didn't get any care or the care was unsuccessful and they actually died. And some will include both sudden cardiac arrest with survival and sudden cardiac death. Uh, so the implementation of emergency action plans and automatic external defibrillators or AED that you might've heard of has dramatically improved survival rates. And in fact, that's seemed to to be what happened with Damar Hamlin. The people on the sidelines immediately recognized this person needs care and rendered CPR almost immediately. But before, or if there wasn't an emergency action plan, it could have gone a different way. So it really is difficult to come up with a confident sort of incidence rate here. Uh, and so the history of like the incidence of sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death in sport really started in 1995. There was a research database, including high school and college athletes from 1983 to 1993. And they basically just figured out, all right, how many people were participating in sport in the United States at that time in high school and college athletics, and then how many sudden cardiac arrests and sudden cardiac deaths actually occurred. And so the, the rate that we started at was one in every 300,000 men who participated in sport at this level. Uh, that was the incidence there. And then for women, it was one in every 1.3 million women. So much lower rate in women. And we'll see that trend sort of uh, preserved as we go through this. Uh, so that was 1995. That's kind of where we started. Uh, later on, uh, the U.S. Registry for Sudden Death in Athletes, so USRSDA, collected information on sudden cardiac death and sudden cardiac arrest in athletes from 1980 on uh, from media, electronic databases, and self-reports, usually next of kin. Uh, the denominator was set at 10.7 million, but it was unclear how that was actually determined. They just kind of said that was the denominator, but they didn't explain why. Uh, and the uh, age range in that particular uh, study what went from eight years old to 39 years old. So pretty, pretty wide age range there, which obviously represents a lot of recreational athletes, not just competitive athletes, and then multiple different demographics. Um, in any case, the new incidence that they calculated was one in every 164,000 athletes. So significantly greater incidence from where we started about half or about double rather is, as many, uh, cases. And then it seems like these were both likely underestimates due to the focus on competitive athletes, in addition to the issues with reporting and definitions. So again, was it sudden cardiac death only or sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death? And then again, the problems coming up with an accurate denominator. Uh, as you can imagine, this makes any specific incidents somewhat controversial. Still, the overall incidence is currently uh, thought to be somewhere between a one in every 50,000 and one in every 100,000 uh, as far as young athletes go, although this does get much more common in older athletes. As far as where those numbers came from, there are multiple data sets uh, that have been independently calculated uh, using uh, mandatory reporting databases. And on average, they come out to be somewhere in that range, one in every 50,000 to one in every 100,000. Um, and yeah, it, I'm, you can't see this because you're listening, but I'm shrugging my shoulders because again, the data here is not perfect. And again, this, this seems to be just a problem with reporting and calculating an accurate denominator and then just, uh, um, really trying to get a, a, a confident data set 
Uh, we'll see if that changes, but yeah, we started at one in every 300,000 <laughs> and now have gotten down to one in every 50,000 to one in every 100,000. So it's definitely more common than we originally thought, um, but still relatively rare overall. As far as why it is higher in older athletes, and we we kind of put that cut point at 35 years of age, so younger athletes being less than 35, older athletes being greater than 35. In big uh, in big quotes there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It, basically, this cut point is related to the different causes in both groups. So, for example, in individuals who are less than 35, this seems to be more a congenital or uh, sort of inherited heart conditions like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the anomalous origin of a coronary artery, meaning that the coronary artery comes off a different part of the heart than it normally does. And in those over the age of 35, we think it's mostly related to good old coronary artery disease or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, the ASCVD that we have talked about a number of times on this podcast. We'll cover both of those in depth in the next section. And, you know, Austin, interestingly, you would probably approach a patient differently if they came in under your care, you know, if they were younger versus older and they had a report of either sudden cardiac arrest or cardiovascular issue. If somebody was in their early 20s or a teenager and they had it versus somebody in their 40s, you would probably think about this differently. Is that is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the most common things that I um, am asked to see patients for and evaluate like in the ERs for, for chest pain related complaints or shortness of breath or things like that. And those are definitely symptoms that can arise from heart disease, lung disease, things like that. And so when I'm working with my students and my residents, you know, we talk through what are the different causes of, of these things? What are the different, you know, uh, potential things that could be going on? And then based on the information we get about the patient, be it their age, sex, prior medical history, things like smoking, other, you know, other things that could be going on. And then the story that they tell us, how they describe their symptoms, all of that basically alters uh, the probability of those things. So if I have, you know, if we get called and the, and the ER doctor says, Hey, we have somebody with chest pain. And then I'm like, okay, tell me more about this person. And they say, all right, they're 20 years old. The immediate, you know, list of things in my brain and how they're prioritized shuffles around one way. And then if they tell me, Oh, they're, they're 85, it shuffles around in a different way. And then there's a whole spectrum in between. And then that information, that probability is kind of further refined with each piece of information that I get. And that's what ends up leading us to how we approach, whether we do certain tests, whether we don't do other tests, tests, depending on how likely they are to, to give us the information we need. You know, some tests that I would do in a young person, I would never do in an old person because they become much less helpful. And some tests that I would do in an old person are way too aggressive and, and not appropriate for a young person, particularly if their story, you know, suggests maybe a, a lower risk profile. So um, the spectrum of disease um, varies. And so basically, we're just taking like, what is the base rate of these conditions, the epidemiology, and applying it to the way we approach these patients to get the best information in the in the most cost-effective way, least invasive way, things like that. Yep. So although the incidence of sudden cardiac death related to acute exertion, so that sports-related sudden cardiac death, is higher in competitive athletes, the absolute number of sudden cardiac deaths is actually greater during recreational sports due to the sheer number of individuals, particularly adults greater than the age of 35, participating in recreational activities. So it's just the N, the sample size is much, much larger. However, even in younger age groups, the majority of exercise-related or sports-related cardiac arrests occur in those not engaged in organized competitive sports. And again, it's just a numbers game at that point. Therefore, despite the high profile of sports-related sudden cardiac death, the majority of sports-related sudden cardiac death or exercise-related sudden cardiac death occurs during recreational activities. Uh, of note, it is unclear whether the rate 
of sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death is higher in athletes compared to the general population, particularly, you know, insufficiently active individuals. Some studies have found an increase compared to age-matched controls who do not exercise or who do not participate in any sort of sport. Uh, Others have found a reduced rate. If there is an increase, the way I look at this is that sport may be the maybe identifying those at risk of sudden cardiac arrest versus causing any particular maladaptive issue, meaning that the you know, sport or exercise itself is unlikely to be causing some sort of structural issue underlying, but rather if you require the heart to beat harder, faster, et cetera, under, you know, gradually uh, more extreme, I put that in air quotes, you guys can't see this, conditions, well, if you have an underlying cause, you're harboring some sort of predisposition to having this, you're going to be identified or more yeah, likely you're, to be you're, you're, you're basically unmasking the underlying condition in that situation or setting the context, setting the conditions that are necessary for that condition to actually manifest itself. Yep. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this, the trend over time, as far as how often this is happening, has been pretty stable over the years, although survival rates have improved significantly. And a lot of this has to do with emergency action plans, more people trained in CPR and BLS and stuff like that. Uh, But of note, especially because of the social media scourge that has taken place since this event with Damar Hamlin. There's no evidence that COVID-19 infection or vaccination has increased rates of sudden cardiac arrest or sports-related sudden cardiac death. Uh, I'll, I'll talk briefly about this. Myocarditis, which you know, is inflammation of the heart, uh, may actually predispose athletes to sudden cardiac arrest. For example, myocarditis has been reported in 6 to 7% of cases of sudden cardiac death in competitive athletes and about 20% of military recruits who've had sudden cardiac death. Uh, however, in a review of the uh, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, so that's VAERS, if you've spent any time outside of a rock in the last <laughs> two or three years, you've heard people talk about VAERS. Uh, it's a passive surveillance system in the United States to which patients and providers can submit a report of events. Uh, Among over 192 million people who have received an mRNA vaccine between December 2020 and August 2021, there were 16, uh, sorry, 1,626 cases that met the definition of myocarditis following vaccine receipt. This is a very, very, very low rate. The majority of these cases occurred after the second dose. The median age was 20 years of age, and 82% of these cases occurred in males. For all age groups, the risk of myocarditis or pericarditis, which is inflammation of the outer envelope of the heart, following mRNA vaccination is estimated to be less than the risk associated with the actual COVID-19 infection. So the TLDR, in this case, too long didn't listen. The available evidence does not suggest that there's been a significant increase in sudden cardiac arrest or sports-related sudden cardiac death rates. Claims to the contrary are limited to social media and blog posts, which have been plentiful over the past few days. It's just where are people getting this evidence from? It's not based on reports from people who actually seen patients. It's not based on registry data. It's basically just made up and meant to do something, but I can't figure out the why other than to support some sort of... I don't know, conspiracy theory narrative. Austin, any any thoughts on that? Uh, I'd rather not. Okay, <laughs> moving on. Moving on. All that is to say that if somebody has myocarditis, that could be an underlying factor that predisposes folks to sudden cardiac arrest and subsequently sudden cardiac death. But it is unlikely that 
again, COVID-19 infection or vaccination against COVID-19 uh, has actually led to significantly higher rates of sudden cardiac arrest uh, in sport. Because people are saying, you know, like, look at all these athletes just dropping dead. This is new. Yeah, that's a brand new thing, right? Myocarditis has been around forever. Sudden cardiac arrest has been around forever. Um, and sudden cardiac death have been around forever. And yep. I am unconvinced that we have a, uh, you know, very recent, you know, skyrocketing in rates of this happening. Yeah. In fact, all available data points to, again, a very stable trend over the years. Uh, so the the rate hasn't seemed to increase outside of additional participation in sports, which you would expect if more and more people are participating in sports, that this is going to happen more frequently. But again, the survival rate is also improving because of better action plans, more people trained to administer CPR and better care in the hospital. So that's all we'll say on that. Let's talk about the pathophysiology. So why does this happen? And the way I think about this is that there are two broad categories leading to sudden cardiac arrest. There can be a structural issue with the heart, or there can be a primary electrical disease uh, with the heart. So Austin, how do you like differentiate those two things? What what? How do you make sense yeah. of that? Yeah. I mean, cardiac arrest can happen for many, many, many other reasons as well. When we talk about sudden cardiac arrest here in this situation, we're kind of limiting it somewhat to primary issues with the heart itself, right? So like I can think about people who have blood clots in certain areas or their potassium levels can be too high or, you know, all sorts of other things that can cause cardiac arrest in, in other contexts. But here it's like problems with the heart. The heart is a muscle uh, with, you know, four different chambers. Blood comes back from the body to one side and then gets pumped out, you know, the other side. And there's some valves in between and you need to have smooth blood flow between these chambers. And then the beating of the heart itself happens uh, because there is basically electrical wiring embedded throughout this heart muscle and that electrical wiring conducts. So there is electrical conduction from the top part of the heart down to the bottom part of the heart and that electricity as it passes through causes the, the muscle cells themselves to contract and that's what generates the heartbeat and that's what pumps blood out to the body. In a similar way to how our nerves, you know, travel out to our muscles, to our quads and help us squat a weight. It's just that this is its own self-contained system. It is rhythmic, it is regular, and it beats continuously for our entire life. Um, and so the, the, the fact that we have this muscular structure is one fundamental component of the heart. And then the electrical, the embedded electrical system is the other fundamental component of the heart. And problems with either of those um, can lead to impairments in how the blood flows through the heart, obstruction to flow, blockage to flow. Um, and then that itself can set off abnormal heart rhythms or the electrical system can also be abnormal either, you know, can, uh, off, on, in, in some situations that can be congenital. And then in older patients, we often see more of a, what we call acquired problems with the electrical system where they develop it later in life due to, for example, having had a heart attack uh, earlier in life um, that can lead to problems with the electrical conduction system and leave them prone to abnormal heart rhythms and things like that. So in this context, we're talking about people who are otherwise apparently healthy, who don't have all these chronic medical conditions, you know, that, that the, that the older individuals may have, may have developed over the course of their life. They may be born with an abnormal structure to their heart. That's something that we can typically identify by putting an ultrasound probe on somebody's chest and doing something called an echocardiogram ultrasound of the heart that shows us the heart beating in real time. We can look at all the areas of the muscle. We can look at the valves. We can, we can make sure that the structure looks, looks normal as well as the flow. 
And then a second piece would be the electrical conduction system and an EKG or an electrocardiogram or an ECG, whatever you want to call it, where they put stickers on your chest and basically measure the electrical activity through the heart over the period of, you know, a few seconds. That gives us a snapshot in time of whether that electrical conduction looks normal or whether the electricity is going through the heart in an abnormal way, whether it's getting blocked at some point, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a whole, you know, lengthy list of different potential electrical problems that can lead to abnormal heart rhythms and sudden cardiac arrest that can be identified on an EKG. Um, and then even some of them that may not be immediately apparent on an EKG, which is, again, just like a six-second snapshot or so, um, but may be things that can get unmasked in certain situations. They may need to be induced in certain situations. And so that would be a situation where, for example, exercise may be one of the things that can induce some of those things, um, which can obviously be harder to diagnose if you're just getting a, you know, an, an echocardiogram, the ultrasound, and an EKG at rest in somebody. It may look pretty good, but uh, may not necessarily reveal everything you need to know about what's going on yeah so either way whether it's a structural uh cause or electrical cause or some mix of both the majority of these sports related sudden cardiac death events in athletes are due to a uh, malignant arrhythmia so either sustained ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation uh occurring secondary to the immediate physiological demands of exercise triggering these. So again, at rest may look pretty normal, but during, you know, uh, elevated needs during sport, things may change. Now, Austin, I know the scariest EKG, ECG tracing that you could see walking into a patient's room is just flat. And you're like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but is VTAC the second one for you? Or VFib, like what's what's your yeah? VFib would be worse, and then VTAC would be the next worse, and, <laughs> and then you of course want to know if the person has a pulse. But but the point of these, you mentioned this idea of a malignant arrhythmia. Ultimately, what we're talking about here are you know instead of the regular you know metronome type regular heartbeat that you can feel if you just feel your pulse, these are heart rhythms that are abnormal to the point of being ineffective at generating you know cardiac output ineffective at getting blood out to your brain to your body to your vital organs to keep you conscious and doing doing your your uh, doing your thing living your life exercising competing whatever the case is and so when anybody goes into these heart rhythms and it is sustained the most important thing by far is to get them out of it and get them back into a heart rhythm that can effectively get blood out of the heart into those vital organs back to perfuse their their body. So these are extremely dangerous and require immediate action, particularly if they're if they're sustained. Yep. So uh, for sports related sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death in young athletes, again under the age of thirty five, uh, and realistically, you know, in the mid twenties or, or younger, the most common causes are congenital structural heart diseases like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and anomalous origin of the coronary artery. Uh, for example, in one study, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and anomalous origin of a coronary artery accounted for more than half of the cases of sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death. Also seen in a separate study where 55 college and professional athletes suffering sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death, uh, cardiomyopathies accounted for nearly half of those cases as well. So those are probably the two biggest causes, again, in young athletes. Uh, a separate study showed that among 51 middle school athletes, anomalous origin of a coronary artery accounted for one-third of cases of sudden cardiac arrest and death. Uh, and then finally, in a cohort of over 6 million military recruits in the United States, the mean age was 19, although it ranged from 17 to 35, uh, there were 108 sports-related sudden cardiac deaths that occurred. Uh, as far as the cause, the anomalous origin of a coronary artery was uh, 
caused a third of the cases, so 33%. Myocarditis caused 20% of cases, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy caused 13% of cases. Uh, and altogether, uh, this accounted for a substantial portion, you know, of the the total incidents. And uh, yeah, there was still some coronary atherosclerosis that was likely responsible in some of these, particularly the older individuals that was responsible for about 16% of those cases in the military recruits. Um, so we're going to go through the most common causes and talk about them a little bit. The first one we'll start with is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Now, previously on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we have championed hypertrophy, like get big <laughs> muscles, get big and jacked. That's going to be the ticket. But you don't necessarily want that in the heart muscle. Austin, what's the, what's the deal with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Why is this, what is it and why is it a bad thing? Yeah. So I mentioned the heart is a muscle and muscles the you know, one of the main characteristics of them is that they can do physical work and they can also adapt to the demands that are, that are placed on them. Um, and so it's possible for hearts to become thickened over the course of somebody's life for a variety of reasons. We know that there can be some thickening of the heart muscle that can happen in athletes and in lifters that is not necessarily, you know, always problematic or pathologic. There can also be some more problematic thickening of the heart that can happen if somebody has long-term high blood pressure, because the heart is basically having to continuously pump against that high resistance for very long periods of time. And the heart can get very thickened and, and that can cause, cause problems over time time. And then this situation that we're talking about is unique compared to those because hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a situation where you have uh, some, it's, it's genetically inherited. There are a whole host of different genes that can cause it. And there are genetic mutations in some of the uh, uh, proteins that allow the heart muscle to do its job normally. And, and so they, you know, these different genetic mutations can be inherited in a variety of ways. And these lead to a variety of potential structural changes in the heart. There's there's different kind of um, variations of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that, that people can have, but basically it leads to abnormal thickening of the heart muscle, in particular in a way that can sometimes block blood flow uh, on its way out of the heart in, in certain configurations. And when that blood flow is blocked and the heart is kind of struggling to do what it normally does, that can set off abnormal uh, heart rhythms and lead to sudden cardiac arrest and death, particularly in the context of, of exertion. I mean, you may remember back even when we were in med school, very typical test questions we might get would be some like teenage basketball player who like collapses on the court or something like that. COVID-19 um, vaccine. <laughs> and this was, yeah, <laughs> this was, 15, you know, 12, what, 12, 13, whatever years ago at this point. So, um, so that was not a thing. And, and, and that was definitely leading us towards hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So it's something that's been known for, for, uh, for quite a long time. Yeah. Unfortunately, this is a pretty common disease. It occurs in approximately one out of every 500 individuals in the general population. In most athletes who end up having sudden cardiac death or sudden cardiac arrest due to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was not previously established. Uh, patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who are at the highest risk of sudden cardiac death are those with prior sudden cardiac arrest. So if that makes sense. If you've, if had, you've died before and you, and you got resuscitated, you're yes. at high risk of dying again. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, in addition, those who have unexplained syncope, so feel, you know, uh, they're uh, passing it. Yep. Loss of consciousness, massive hypertrophy, and they call that a uh, left ventricular wall thickness greater than 30 millimeters, family history of sudden cardiac death due to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So if it runs in your family, and as you mentioned earlier, if there's a outflow tract obstruction and there are particular numbers related to how you can measure that. Um, so yeah. Uh, also people who have non-sustained 
ventricular arrhythmias that were observed on EKG or ECG monitoring. So all these things would say, not only do you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but it is becoming evident and we can see it at rest. Um, all of these things seem to increase the risk of sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death from uh, this particular uh uh, issue. Uh, moreover, age is a relative determinant with adolescent and young athletes being at much higher risk than adult patients. And, and this is similar, I think, to uh, when you're compared the incidence of sudden cardiac arrest in the gen pop versus who doesn't exercise or participate in sport to those who do participate in sport. It's like if you have been participating in sports or been active your whole life and you've never had a problem, you are less likely to have this condition because it would have identified itself already. It would have the been longer, unmasked. the longer, yeah, the longer you go without a problem, the less likely this particular problem is to manifest. Yep. So among patients with this condition, uh, there's uh, stratification as advised by the American Heart Association and the European Society on Cardiology can identify patients at high uh, and relatively low risks for sudden cardiac death. However, zero risk does not exist. And even patients defined as low risk have a small but non-trivial risk of sudden cardiac death. Some data suggests that a relatively low risk of ventricular arrhythmias and sudden cardiac death in athletes with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, regardless of the continuation or discontinuation of training and competition. So that basically means it doesn't really matter what your risk is. Uh, or, or if you start or stop exercising. So for example, in a cohort of 88 Italian athletes with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who were advised to discontinue training and competition, 77 of them were low risk by the uh, European Society of Cardiology algorithm, and 67 of those were low risk from the American Heart Association algorithm. 61 patients stopped exercising, but 27 continued to exercise against clinician advice. Uh, on an average follow-up of seven years, 1.3% of patients per year developed symptoms, so syncope, palpitations, and only one cardiac arrest occurred. And this was in a detrained person not participating in exercise. And there were no significant differences in the event rates between sedentary and the exercising group, which basically means we told all these people to stop exercising and stop participating in sport, but there was no real difference in the outcomes, which kind of begs the question, like, are we really doing the right thing here? Because there are risks and harms from not participating as well. And it doesn't really appear that there's, you know, a reliable benefit. We'll get to that later when we talk about screening, but I thought that was interesting. So hypertrophic, that's the uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. When we talk about anomalous origin of the coronary artery, basically it just means is that the, again, a coronary artery, which is designed to feed the heart muscle, you have two of them and they branch into different, uh, 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 subsequent, uh, smaller vessels, they basically feed the heart with oxygenated blood. And so if it's coming from the wrong area or its route is positioned in a way where it gets compressed, cut off, or otherwise obscured, uh, that can be a problem. This has been found in 12 to 33% of young athletes with sudden cardiac death, uh, during autopsy. Uh, in some cases, the, the coronary artery that's coming from the wrong place courses between the aorta and the pulmonary artery. In this setting, the vessel may become compressed leading to myocardial ischemia. So a heart attack and subsequently a possible fatal arrhythmia. So the actual heart rhythm and electrical activity is, is compromised. Uh, this is most likely to occur during periods of high cardiac output, such as young athletes and military recruits. So again, Again, when people start participating in sport or physical activity, yes, the risk goes up because again, you're unmasking any of these potential conditions that would otherwise not be uh, realized be if somebody was insufficiently active, sedentary, et cetera. Uh, Austin, have you ever seen one of these anomalous origins of coronary artery? 
Um, I don't believe I have in an adult patient that I've taken care of. I've seen other coronary artery related abnormalities. Um, there's, there's, there's other weird things that we don't necessarily need to get into the, to the weeds on here, but, um, recognizing that if I have, it was maybe like one case, but it doesn't really immediately spring to mind. So pretty uncommon by the time people get to me. I remember when I was getting my master's in anatomy prior to going to medical school on one of our anatomy exams, they were, they were really trying to get us. They were, they were out to get us. They were out to get the the professors. And I remember they tagged, it ended up being a left coronary artery, but it came from the right side and looped all the way around the aorta. And I was like, what? I mean, <laughs> it's not the right coronary artery because I can see it, yeah. but it's coming from the right side. And so I remember I answered the question correctly, but everybody, what the heck? This is unfair. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the professors- med student complaining. <laughs> one of the professors was like, you've never heard of the anomalous <laughs> origin of a coronary artery? And we're like, uh, no, in fact, we have not. So <laughs> yeah, so it's been burned into my hippocampus. Um, so those are the main structural uh, causes of sudden cardiac arrest uh, in young athletes. Um, a relatively smaller fraction of sports-related sudden cardiac arrest in young athletes is- related to electrical diseases, uh, which can cause arrhythmia. So things like long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome and whatnot. Austin, uh, what do you, what, uh, what's your take on this? Yeah. These are things that I actually think about and see probably a bit more often, not necessarily congenital long QT syndrome, but there are various EKG changes. There's, there's a couple of them. There's, there's a few other ones as well that basically, you know, I teach my, my, trainees and, and learners that anytime we get somebody, particularly who were more, you know, is on the younger side of the spectrum, if they come in with, uh, after an episode of passing out, it is our responsibility to scrutinize their EKG very, very closely for every single one of these possibilities to make sure they're not present because um, it's different than, oh, I just passed out because I didn't drink enough today, <laughs> you know, fluids sure. or whatever. This is something that if it is undetected um, can recur. And as we mentioned before, if if whatever the heart issue is, whether it's structural or whether it's electrical, is contributing to people uh, passing out, then that means it's also going to be uh, increasing the risk of having sudden cardiac death. So there are a bunch of these that can be, in some cases, seen on the resting EKG, and in some cases, unfortunately, can be hidden. So like Brigada syndrome sometimes is not super apparent and gets unmasked, like in certain situations, like if people are sick and have fevers or on certain medicines or things like that, which makes it a little, a little more scary too. So yeah. Yeah. One of the other uh, conditions that got a lot of airplay uh, since this Damar Hamlin sort of incident was Camotio cordis, um, which I view as sort of an electrical problem. Is that how you, how you think about it? It's, I suppose, mechanical in a way that then sets off an electrical event. <laughs> yeah. So the, the meaning of the, the term commotio cordis is agitation of the heart. So this is uh, effectively sudden cardiac death secondary to blunt, non-penetrating trauma to you know the, the area overlying the heart during a very specific time in the electrical cycle of the heart and effectively stuns the heart. The heart just stops all rhythmic contraction and is just sitting there waiting quivering for yeah <laughs> something to happen ideally yeah. cpr yeah defibrillation etc mm -hmm. this occurs mostly in the young uh, individuals there's a registry uh, which has a mean age of 15 years old 95 percent of reported cases have been males so i guess dudes are just getting hit in their chest more often and 75 percent of these actually occur during uh, during athletics 50 percent during competitive athletics and 25 percent during recreational athletics uh there's no defined velocity at which something must hit the anterior aspect of the individual overlying 
in the heart. Uh, there's actually some really interesting slash weird studies that have been done on this where they anesthetize pigs and they fire projectiles at them uh, at the area overlying the heart and to see if they can initiate this commotio cortis. Um, so in these experimental models, speeds up to 40 miles per hour tend to increase the uh, risk of commotio cortis. Uh, but in higher speeds than 40 miles an hour, you tend to get more actual damage to the heart itself. So you think about if you had a baseball, you know, fired at you at 40 miles an hour, it might hit at exactly the right time and could cause this. But if it's fired at you at a hundred miles an hour, it may actually like break your sternum and actually damage the heart. In which case <laughs> yeah. it's not commotio cordis. It's, oh, you have a mass trauma to the actual heart. Yeah. It's really difficult to convey just, you know, just how many stars have to align perfectly for <laughs> yeah. between the velocity, the type of impact, the substrate, the person that it's, that it's hitting, the location that it's hitting. And probably most importantly, as you mentioned, is the timing during the cardiac cycle, because it's something that is like on the order of milliseconds in either direction is going to not be at the right time to yeah. you know, do this thing. You have a 20 millisecond window for this to happen. Right. And yeah, so the risk goes up with harder objects. Uh, but not pneumatic objects like a tennis or soccer ball in general, more like baseballs, lacrosse balls, hockey, stuff like that. That's harder. Uh, but again, it can't cause any like tr traumatic injury to the heart. It's really just got to be a thump. And then at the r exact right time, it can cause this kind of stunning uh, of the heart. Interestingly here, uh, like a chest protector does not seem to reduce the risk here. They actually, the second experiment, these weirdo individuals, I shouldn't call them weird. They're trying to get answers, but I just, when I read these studies, I was, my mind was blown. They took the anesthetized pigs, they put chest protectors over them, and they did the same experiment again, firing these projectiles at them at progressively increasing velocities. And it did not seem to actually reduce the risk of commotio cortis. So I thought that was interesting. Also a bit disturbing, like who passed, what IRB was like, yeah, this is fine. Let's do this. So I don't know. But the uh, survival uh, is actually not that great. It's about 58%. Um, these people need immediate uh, CPR and early defibrillation. Um, and so being able to recognize that this happened and then having you know somebody on the sidelines or multiple people on the sidelines who can perform CPR seems to be the, uh, the big ticket here. And this may have been what DeMar Hamlin actually had. It could have been. We don't we don't know and probably won't ever know because they didn't have an EKG on the field to be like, oh, this is what's going on with your heart rhythm uh, or whatnot. But uh, yeah, the immediate um, application of CPR seemed to be really helpful there. Um, overall, for sports-related sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death in older athletes, the most common causes were not congenitally uh, uh, transmitted, but rather from acquired coronary artery disease, like the uh, ACS, ASCVD that we've talked about in a number of different podcasts. This can also, you know, be combined structural and electrical. We've again, hammered this at length. Um, Austin, as far as, you know, where people can go, do you have, do you think, uh, which one of our articles or podcasts do you think best sort of covers how to reduce the risk of ASCVD as you, as you age? Uh, oh man. Um, I know red, that we, I, th I think we talked about it in like the that. red meat article. Yeah. yeah. And then we've, yeah, we've definitely had a few more subsequent ones since then. I don't know if you feel like there is a need for just like one dedicated one that we can like point people to, or if we need to like compile those in some fashion or take snippets or something. Heart health. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but in, in any case, as athletes invariably age and, and whatnot, yes. In, instead of it being more of a congenital structural issue or congenital electrical issue, this seems to be more acquired. You know, people have atherosclerotic plaques, people have other disease risk factors, and then exercise, you know, is 
some non-zero risk uh, that demands greater and greater cardiac output. And uh, yeah, if you're at risk, that could be one of the times um, where this kind of kind of bites you. Although I will say that the majority of these these uh, cases seem to happen uh, either during rest or other times of the day, and that's just a numbers game because again, you're not spending your whole day being super super active. There is another hypothesis we're going to briefly address here. And because I, and I, I talked about this briefly earlier that it doesn't look like exercise is, is tending to cause these like maladaptive changes in the heart, whether it be the structure or the electrical system. But there is this sort of extreme exercise hypothesis, the idea that exercise volumes beyond the quote unquote optimal dose actually can cause harm or in, you know, uh, impart greater risk of either sudden cardiac arrest or other sort of bad outcomes. Some epidemiological studies reported increased risk of disease and or mortality at the highest exercise volumes, which suggests that the health benefits of an active lifestyle may plateau or even decline in extreme exercisers. To be clear, this data and these observational studies where they exist are all in like high volume endurance athletes, people who are doing like 10x, 20x, 30x, the current act physical activity guidelines. I do not know that you can do resistance training to that level. I just think you run out of hours. Um, but in any case, cross-sectional studies have reported that the most active veteran endurance runners have an increased risk of what they call myocardial fibrosis, coronary artery calcification. So that can be measured by the CAC score. Uh, we've talked about that in previous podcasts and also atrial fibrillation. These observations imply that high volumes of chronic endurance exercise training may actually be detrimental to the heart. And you may have heard this in some other form uh, previously, but this is again, this extreme exercise hypothesis. Uh, overall, it remains difficult to differentiate between a real finding that supports the extreme exercise hypothesis and a loss of health benefits due to statistical factors produced by the relatively small number of individuals in the most active group. Basically, by the time you're talking about people who would qualify as extreme exercisers, the sample size is very, very small. And so it's not adequately powered to really tell you, like, is this due to exercise or is this just an artifact or a coincidence that we're seeing because we're only looking at four people? five people, something like that. Um, with respect to exercise, yeah, there's an increased risk of AFib, atrial fibrillation from high volumes of exercise. We've talked about that on a number of other podcasts before. That seems to be pretty well established. Uh, but as far as the rest of this, like the myocardial fibrosis or coronary artery calcification, I don't know that those are actually anomalies or, or bad, so to speak. So for example, an increased coronary artery calcification score, CAC score, occurs with statin administration. But we know that that reduces the risk of having a major adverse cardiac event like a heart attack or stroke. We know that. And so this sort of increased cardiac uh, coronary artery calcification may just be a response to exercise and may just be, again, a coincidence. And I not think it's, I, I think it, re it reminds me of things we've talked about in other situations where it's not necessarily just the presence or absence of calcium, but perhaps the way you got there sure. that, that impacts it, right? Kind of like when we've talked about interpreting the significance of a high blood pressure measurement, the way you got there might matter in terms of how much risk it, it confers, because we know that exercise overall reduces the risk of cardiovascular problems, even despite these rare, you know, things that we're talking about today. We know that, you know, 
lipid lowering therapy like statins reduces the risk of cardiovascular events, even though both of those things can increase coronary calcium. But we also know that in other situations, coronary calcium, uh, particularly when it relates to, you know, atherosclerosis and calcified plaques and things like that, um, you would, you would prefer to have less than, than more in that situation because it does tend to scale with risk. So it does seem like the way you get, get there matters. Yeah. And overall, I, I guess I'm just less concerned about these intermediate findings that don't necessarily translate to outcomes we care about, whether that's premature mortality, whether it's a major adverse cardiac event, or other sort of actual like health condition that we act- actively have to manage. So when people say myocardial fibrosis secondary to extreme exercise, I'm like, well, do we have to do anything about that? And does that actually lead to more heart attacks, more strokes, more whatever? And overwhelmingly, the data says, nah, overwhelmingly, there's this dose dependent relationship between exercise and improved health outcomes and measures thereof. And so if we happen to find a few things that are like, "Mm, this doesn't look quite as good uh, as we previously uh, expected or would expect otherwise, I I just, I guess I'm not sure how much I care. (laughs) Like, uh, until there's, you know, case report after case report after case report or like reliable findings that, yep, exercising at 10x above the physical activity guidelines recommendations actually causes more major adverse cardiac events, more diabetes. And it's like, well, we don't see any of that. We see the exact opposite. And it's like, so moving right along until there's more data. Do you feel similarly about that or? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. (laughs) All right. Okay. So we talked about what sudden cardiac arrest, sudden cardiac death is related to sports. We talked about how often it happens. We talked about why it happens. So now let's talk about what we can do about it. So let's start off with screening. And this is probably the second most controversial uh, aspect of this podcast. The first being the bit on COVID-19. And I, I wonder if we're going to get flagged. You think like, you think there's an AI tool that like listens to this and they, they said COVID, they said vaccine. We're going to get like Shadow GPT is going to be mad at us. Yeah. Shadow band or something like that. (laughs) Um, So from a screening perspective, the incidence of sudden cardiac arrest related to sports and young people is relatively low. Again, we think it's one out of every 50,000 to one out of every 100,000 people participating in sport, whether that's competitive or recreational. Uh, By definition, for extremely rare events, most positive or abnormal uh, screening tests are going to be false positives rather than true positives. Austin, what do you what do you mean by that? Uh, yeah, so we've we've uh, these are these are some topics that I would refer people back to our screening episode to get a more comprehensive discussion on. But basically, the idea with screening tests are that you want to perform a test that is likely to capture every possible case of a condition. And when you do that, it necessarily is going to come along with some false positives because you don't want to miss anybody with a screening test. The only way to not miss anybody is to probably overcatch people. And so the problem with that is that when the condition you're looking for is really, really rare, then just the way statistics work means that most of the people you catch are going to be false positives. Um, Compared with screening for much more prevalent conditions, much more common conditions overall, or more targeted screening, where you only screen particular demographics that are at high risk or or in whom there is a high rate of this condition. Because the more common it is, then when you test with this kind of a screening test, you know, it the test performance improves significantly. But we're talking about a very uncommon, very rare event overall. And then, you know, break that down even further into the individual component 
you know, medical conditions that can cause cardiac arrest. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or these electrical problems that we're talking about or the anomalous coronaries or whatever. Each of those is by definition even even less common. Um, and so screening, screening for those uncommon conditions with a test that is designed to catch everybody is necessarily going to give you mostly false positive results that you then have to deal with on the back end, um, be it, you know, further testing, procedures, um, anxiety, you know, fear, am I going to die at any moment from this? Uh, well, maybe we can't predict <laughs> any, anybody can die at any moment, you know, so it, it, it gets tricky. Yeah. I mean, there are ways to screen for this. So history, physical exam, uh, combined with the electrocardiogram, uh, plus or minus an echocardiogram. So the, the ultrasound, uh, picture of the heart, uh, plus or minus a cardiac MRI. So if you use all of these together, yeah, they're able to identify a vast majority of people with relevant structural or electrical abnormality at the time of testing. Um, however, there are still other conditions that will not be caught. Uh, so certain genetic conditions, et cetera. Here's the most interesting part though. Less than 50% of patients who ultimately have sudden cardiac arrest are identified by screening. This is because about 30 to 40% of all sudden cardiac deaths in sport, so in young individuals, have no identifiable electrical or structural abnormalities. And so it's like, yeah, we have all these tests that we can administer, but we're not good at actually catching the people who are going to subsequently have this issue on the field or you know whether the lights are on and the news reporters are there. It's just the tests aren't that great at catching what we want to catch. For, and further, the data on actually preventing the death is ultimately lacking. It Even if you had this great screening tool, does that actually prevent death? Because then at that point, you're going to have to tell people, all right, stop participating in this sport, stop exercising, what you know, whatever. And then some amount of people are going to stop. Another group of people are going to continue on. And then does that actually prevent the, the death? And then so, because you can still have sudden cardiac arrest, even when you're not exercising. Right. It might sound like, oh, sure. If we're talking about exercise-related sudden cardiac death, then not exercising is the way to prevent it. But it's like, that's an assumption. You have to yeah. show that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to continue on this like thought experiment, for the anomalous origin of coronary artery, which can be detected by cardiac MRI, the estimated prevalence is 0.44%. Uh, and this would result in about 4,400 4, people per million being diagnosed with this potentially dangerous abnormality. Uh, if we use data from the military setting, that reported amongst 6.3 million recruits, there were 21 sudden cardiac deaths related to this condition. In other words, we'd have to screen all uh, 6.3 million recruits to identify 21, 21 destined to have <laughs> sudden cardiac death from uh, uh, the anomalous origin of coronary artery. This translates into one such individual who could have been identified by a cardiac MRI out of every 300,000 imaged. But we have no idea if these deaths may or may not be preventable. That's again, just another assumption yeah. the the other thing to point out here is that just because somebody has this condition does not mean that they are destined to experience a sudden cardiac arrest yep. or a sudden cardiac death right there are people who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that live their whole life and die of something else um, there are certain features that can make it higher or lower risk or there can be certain history you know if somebody's passing out that makes you more worried but there are some people who have anomalous coronaries that never you know probably like the person who you were dissecting in medical school if they were you know advanced in age it probably wasn't their coronary artery that took them out if they lived that long with it you know what I mean yeah. So um, you can screen, you can find things, but you still, even once you find that, you may not know that that's the thing that, um, you know, uh, uh, may lead to their ultimate demise. They can still dive any other thing. Yeah. In addition to screening, the cost of screening 6.3 million recruits. <laughs> a lot of MRIs. <laughs> yeah. To, you're, you're right. And that's a pretty expensive test. Yeah. yeah. You're going to identify 25,000 people who have this condition 
to prevent one death potentially. And think about what's happening during that, that patient visit. They're like, Hey, so you have this thing. You probably shouldn't participate in sport. You probably need a surgery, this, that, and the other. And so they're just knock on effects that go on and on and on and on. You still aren't sure. Like, is this actually going to prevent a death, which is a tragic outcome? Yes. But ultimately I just don't, you know, not sure that screening is the is the is the way to go, and and this is why it's so controversial. The authors here, uh, Dorian et al. from the Journal of the American Heart Association in 2020, they had this to say: Unfortunately, much as we may wish for quote unquote effective interventions, there is no evidence that in asymptomatic people in general and athletes in particular, such interventions exist apart from the possible unproven benefit of exercise restriction. It is unclear how a quote an educated population can make definitive decisions about available alternatives, especially when education requires knowledge we have yet to accrue, knowledge of risk that we cannot accurately calculate, and when available alternatives with known efficacy are at best scarce to non-existent. It's like, not good. Yeah, that was that was well well said. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, dang, I can't improve on that. That's why yeah. I quoted him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, you know, more information is better? Mm, not not always. always. Do you really want to know? <laughs> okay, so that screening again is very controversial, and and I, I've put all the links uh, to the papers we've we've been referencing and, and different guidelines that we've been talking about so far in the description below. Here in episode two hundred eight of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we're talking about sports related sudden cardiac death with Dr. Austin Baraki. Uh, so let's talk about the American Heart Association guidelines for people with and without known cardiovascular disease or structural or electrical abnormality. So if somebody is active right now and asymptomatic without known cardiovascular disease or uh, abnormality, their recommendation for exercise and sport is continuous tolerated. If somebody becomes symptomatic, evaluate, which is kind of like a duh. It's like, wow, if you start having chest pain upon exertion, you start having syncope, so unexplained, like you're passing out, this, that, and the other, yep, you you deserve a workup. Uh, if you are active and asymptomatic with known cardiovascular disease or abnormality, they recommend evaluation yearly um, just to make sure nothing has changed. Uh, and you can use the ParMed X for this. So if you are an individual who fits this description, there is a ParMed X sort of questionnaire that if your doctor is unfamiliar with exercise, just kind of walks them through like, hey, should there be any exercise restrictions or additional workup uh, specific to exercise? Uh, that may also involve additional testing, so like a stress test or something like that, just to make sure you're good to go, as far as we can tell, based at that time of testing. So it's not a guarantee. It's just we're doing our best here. Uh, for individuals who are inactive without known cardiovascular disease or abnormality, they recommend beginning exercise or sport without evaluation. And then in those who are insufficiently active with, uh, with known cardiovascular disease or abnormality, uh, they re recommend that people have a medical evaluation and guidance, regardless of the intensity of activity or sport, which all that makes sense to me. It's basically, if you have a known issue, probably requires some monitoring at some duration, but I would say that's probably a hedge at best, just like we don't know that it's actually reducing bad outcomes or whatever. And in fact, this additional barrier that we're placing there may be not helpful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There are no prospective studies that I'm aware of 
looking at this like screening or you know testing strategy uh, that indicate it significantly improves you know outcomes or or prevents bad things from happening, but plausible enough, and so that's kind of where we are. Yeah, there are specific uh, guidelines for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the anomalous coronary artery origin, uh, and COVID, return from COVID. And I've linked all of those in the description below. This podcast is getting a little lengthy, so we'll leave you guys to read those on your own uh, because invariably this voice is going to put you to sleep and I'm not sure that you should be taking uh, this you know, directly to your doctor without having the guidelines uh, in a, you know, either a link or, or some sort of you know, printout to, to show them. But the take-home message here, and Austin will let you weigh in on this, sports-related sudden cardiac death is relatively rare, but has likely been happening since the beginning of human history. Cardiac arrest can happen to anyone at any time. Uh, screening is probably not the answer for reducing sudden cardiac arrest in sport or sudden cardiac death, but more well-trained individuals is probably the biggest thing that we can do as far as improving survivability. So high quality CPR, basic life support and AED availability saves lives. So if you're listening to this and you're like, how can I help? What can I do? Hey, get BLS certified. You can do that. It's pretty, uh, accessible. It's not hard. <laughs> right. And it saves lives. We know that. Uh, and then in people with known structural disease, uh, we would recommend shared decision making regarding the ri risks and benefits where known. Um, and then sort of acceptance that there are unknowns too. We don't necessarily know if restricting exercise is going to benefit certain folks. We don't know what the you know knock on effects of restricting participation in sport would be, and we also don't know that restricting exercise, uh, you know, exercise participation, restricting sports participation actually improves someone's trajectory. It may just be an unfortunate series of events. Um, the final thing I'll say, and I'll just be the political one here: using what happened to Demar Hamlin to push a misinformation campaign regarding COVID is just it's terrible. And uh, shame on people who are doing that. That's that's all I have to say about that. Austin, any other take home messages here? Yeah, I agree with all of those. I think that you know, after it happened, you know, it can be interesting or with our doctor brains to you know hypothesize and come up with things. But ultimately, the conclusion that both of us came to were like, we don't know, and we'd rather not you know speculate publicly about potential causes of what happened there. But I think that the other take home messages here are really quite important for people to recognize that cardiac arrest has been happening. We, we've been doing this <laughs> for, for, a, for, a, for a very long time. Um, it's something I see more often than, than I would like and, and needs to be managed, you know, uh, uh, pretty frequently in the acute care setting and the ERs and hospitals and in ICUs. And yes, um, we have a ton of different interventions and, and really advanced modern things that we can do for these, for, for uh, cardiac arrest situations. However, a ton of them actually have really, really, really poor, you know, supporting evidence that they help, except for really high quality CPR and defibrillation when defibrillation is appropriate with something like an AED. So yeah. getting yeah. familiar with how to do that, how to use those devices is uh, actually worth doing. <laughs> yep. And then if you're listening to this and you're a health and or fitness professional and you have individuals with a known, with either known cardiovascular disease, or structural abnormality or electrical uh, disease that's underlying and you're curious, like, uh, should they be clear for exercise? Please use the ParMed X. That is a, a something that can help uh, not uh, unnecessarily restrict people from exercise and sports participation, um, especially if you feel uncomfortable, like I, I don't actually know, which is a fine place to be, but you can use that resource. It's free. It's available on the internet. Link that in the description below. Um, man, 
This has been episode 208 of the Barbell Medicine. We did it. Yeah. Well well done. Hey, thanks. Uh, Yep. Sports-related sudden cardiac death. This podcast, again, is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes made here in the USA. They've got all uh, the custom belts, in-stock belts, standard belts, uh, and other weightlifting accessories that you would want. So check them out. Support those who support us. You can go to generalleathercraft.com. Tell them Barbell Medicine sent you so they know you got here from our podcast. And before you go anywhere please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For Dr. Austin Baraki, I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.